Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Anglican 101, a history of the Anglican Communion, led by Father Christopher Rodriguez, is a dynamic and educational study that vividly teaches how the Anglican Church was established, beginning with the Old Testament and continuing through present day. All right, so today we're going to look at the third session called the Ecclesia Anglicana, which means the Church of Angels. Anglicana means angel in Latin, so the Ecclesia Anglicana is the church in England. And by way of reminder for last week, we've been talking about a couple themes, because again, you can't cover everything from you know, the creation of the universe to today in six weeks. I'm trying to stay on some themes. If you recall from, the, from session one, we talked about that God works through covenants. Remember that? And that means that no matter what people did, God's promises were fulfilled. And I, last week, we talked about this idea of apostolic succession which I would submit to you as part of the Catholic faith, apostolic succession takes the place, in a sense, of the covenant of the Old Testament. It is the way that God uh, assures his people of sacramental validity and the church functioning despite human brokenness. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, think of it like this. Uh, A bishop or a priest in apostolic succession, which I would be one, Uh, can consecrate the sacrament and pronounce absolution and do all the ministerial acts necessary to care for a congregation, no matter what he thinks. So a person can be a raving, loony heretic. He can consecrate the sacrament and pronounce absolution, whether he believes it or not. Why? Because it's not about him. It's about this idea of apostolic succession being the guarantor, guarantee rather, of sacramental validity. It doesn't guarantee teaching validity. You can be a raving heretic and have apostolic succession. Is that clear? But it does guarantee sacramental validity. We'll get into that a little more today. Don. After last week, the whole apostolic succession thing, what happened when both the split Church of England, they had Church of England and Reformation? We're going to get to all that stuff next week when we talk about the Reformation. And let me just say this, I mean, because when you get into the idea of churches like the Presbyterians or the Methodists who, or the Lutherans in some cases who just sort of dispensed with or didn't make essential apostolic succession, what do you do with that? That's a very good question. Um, we're going to get to that next week at the Reformation, though. Okay. Um, so, um, by way of reminder, bishops are in lineage of apostolic succession by the laying on of hands, right? It takes three bishops at the very least to make a new bishop. The reason you have three is in case one of them have deficiency in orders. Um, And originally from last week we talked about in the beginning there was only one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So the Nicene Creed written in 325 to 385 in that period of time when it talks about one holy Catholic and apostolic church, it was a uh, um, a real thing. Since the split, which we're gonna talk about today, that's changed, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, And then finally, and this is really important, the church made decisions gathered in ecumenical council. That is crucially important. When all the bishops of the world would come together before the great schism in 1054, they would meet as a group and they would make decisions on things like the divinity of Christ, what books were in the Bible, um, the Nicene Creed, all sorts of things, infant baptism, all sorts of stuff. They were made during the first seven ecumenical councils of the church, right? So what do you, how do you have one now that the church is broken apart? We'll get to that in a minute. Any questions so far? Am I, am I going too fast this morning? I'm actually pretty energetic despite my lack of sleep last night. Oh, I wanted to show you this. I know you can't see it, and maybe it looks like beef stroganoff. I'm just, I'm sorry about that. But um, this is 
Ever, anybody ever seen one of these before? This is a, and if you want a copy, I'll give it to you. Uh, this is a copy of the apostolic succession for the Diocese of Central Florida. So if you look here, you'll see, you probably can't read it, it says Jesus Christ. <laughs> right there. And then it has the 12 apostles, and it traces through the lineage, Bishop of Ephesus, all the way through to William White. We're going to get to him later. Uh, William White, who was the first bishop of the Episcopal Church. He's over here somewhere. And then here at the very bottom is Gregory Oren Brewer, who is our current bishop. Point is, we can trace, if you, and again, I'll give you a copy of this if you'd like. Uh, actually, all the American succession works the same way because we all come through William White, who we'll get to later, consecrated in uh, Church of uh, Scotland. Um, but if you go through the whole chart here, it's pretty cool to see that there's actually a lineage you can trace all the way back to Jesus and the, and the 12. So in case you didn't believe it, there it is. You can trace yourself too. Yeah, well actually you could. So I would trace my own orders come, I was ordained by the priesthood by a bishop, the Bishop of Central Africa. It's a long story. But he was, uh, he was through the Church of England. So his would have been actually, his uh, lineage wasn't through William White, which is the Episcopal Church's thread, but he would have been through the Church of England and then into the Diocese of Central, uh, Central Africa. So I'd be over here, I'd be in here somewhere. So anyhow, good stuff. Um, all right, so we're going to move on. So the church initially was one holy Catholic and apostolic, right? Apostolic succession was the guarantee of sacramental validity. Bishops met in councils to make decisions. And then, kaplum. That's a, that's a Greek word, uh, which means to go crazy. Um, actually, <laughs> thank you for that. The, uh, in 1054, uh, the Eastern Church and the Western Church split into, a, into what is known as the Great Schism. The word is schism, by the way, not schism, in case anybody ever asks you. Uh, and the Roman Catholic, it, 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 at one point, originally was the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That was it. We looked, saw a picture of that last week, remember? And then it broke into two halves, and either side excommunicated the other. So the Bishop of Rome excommunicated the Archbishop of Constantinople, and that's... The, you know, the rest is history. Of the original five patriarchates, the, the five primary dioceses of prominence in the world, only w Rome was the only one in the Western Church. The other four were in the Eastern, Orth which we later recall the Eastern Orthodox Church. Why? Well, good question. And again, it's got some political stuff and I'm really, really oversimplifying, but this is a pretty good representation of why the split occurred. Um, changes in the date of Easter. So, well, I'll get to that and why it's important in a minute. Addition of the Philoque clause, right? Who proceeds from the Father and the Son. That little and the Son is not in the original creed. And then finally, the Bishop of Rome began to assert his, what you could call primacy, meaning he was, he was over the other bishops. Okay, these are actually all related items. Anybody figure out why? Anybody know why the date of Easter, the addition of the Filioque, and the assertion of the primacy of Rome are all under the same cause? Uh, money, probably. Control. Remember, remember what I said, that the Calendar. bishops... What's that? Calendar. Calendar. Uh, the bishops would gather an ecumenical council, right, to make decisions, like the date for Easter, or the words of the Nicene Creed, or the limits of authority of a bishop. Okay, so when the Roman Catholic Church, or the Church of Rome, I should say, 
uh, decides to change the date of Easter, the Orthodox, well, everybody else goes, wait, you can't do that. That's the decision of a council. When they, when they add the filioque clause in the Church of Rome, the Latin Church, the, everybody else says, wait, you can't do that. That's a decision of a council. And when he says, well, all you bishops are equal except for me, I'm, good, I'm now a bishop over all the other bishops, they say, wait a minute, you can't see that. That's a decision of a council. Do you see my point? What's happened, it sounds subtle, but it's actually hugely important, is that the bishop, the, the bishop of Rome and the Latin Church began to assert itself over and against all the other bishops in the world. Why is this important? Because you'll see when we get to Anglicanism in a moment, we, we always hearken back to the church before the, before the great schism is the way we do theology. Any questions there? How big was the Roman diocese compared to the rest of the Eastern? Uh, all I know is, of the, I don't know numbers, but uh, there was the, church, the diocese of Rome was one. The other four, were, uh, other four patriarchates were in the Eastern church. Interestingly, though, part of the problem in all this, because again, politics and religion always are tied hand in hand, nothing like a church fight, like they say, right? Uh, during this period of time, if you know your history, the uh, Moors were conquering vast swaths of territory. Uh, Islam was going through and laying waste to large parts of the world, including most of the eastern part of the empire. So when the, not only were they being converted by force, if necessary, by Islam, uh, the Western Church had the military power, the Eastern Church not as much because of the influx from the Moors, uh, the, from the Muslims, and then um, when the Eastern Church appealed to Rome for help, Rome said, eh, no. And so Constantinople, which was the headquarters of the Eastern part of the empire, was sacked by the Muslims, and if you look at, everybody look, look at the, the, uh, uh, the, I don't know what they call it in Islam, they call it something, it's got a great big dome on it in Constantinople. It's a mosque. The Hagia Sophia was the original church that the Muslims then converted into a mosque. But it was originally the cathedral church of the Diocese of Constantinople, the whole Eastern Church. Like, uh, what's the basilica in Rome, the big one? St. Paul's. It's the equivalent of St. Paul's, but it has currently got a crescent and not a cross on top of it. Anyway, so um, let me get, uh, segue a little bit here. There, so the church breaks into two big chunks, okay? Where it ties in for Anglicans is we come out of the Western chunk, right? As you'll, you'll see in a moment. But we actually believe in something which is important. Um, there's, let me back up. So in the Roman Church, I'm just going to call it the Roman Church, and the Orthodox Church, or this is called, we'll call it the Eastern Church. When they break apart from each other, they excommunicate one another, right? And, which means they are excluding them from the church, basically kicked out of the church. So the Roman Catholic Church understands itself as the church, right? Right? The Eastern Orthodox Church considers itself the church, okay? There's a word you need to know. It's called ecclesiology, which is a long word for how does a church understand what it is, okay? Who it is, okay? So this is important, actually, because Anglicans order, uh, offer a different alternative, which you'll see in a moment. The Roman Catholic Church would say, would say, we're it, right? The Orthodox Church would say, oh, no, no, we're it. And historically, they probably have a little more basis for that claim, given the fact that, they, that all the councils back them up for the most part. Anglicans say, we're not it, but we're part of it. 
Does that make sense? It's in a brilliant, and you're going to see why in a minute. So the Roman Catholic Church says, we're it. And the Eastern Church says, no, no, we're it. Neither one of these two recognize each other. There was a meeting not, not too long ago between the Bishop of Rome, AKA the Pope, and the Bishop of Constantinople, the Patriarch of the Eastern Churches. And they met for the first time since the Great Schism. It was a thousand years ago. So old, nothing like a church fight. And they, those, those wounds run deep. But the important thing to see is that the, the Roman Church considers, considers itself the church. The Orthodox Church considers itself the church. Anglicans say, we are not the only church, we are a part of the church. And, we, and the theory which this comes from is something called the branch theory. Anybody know who that, that dashing young fellow is? No? His name is John Henry Newman, and he was an Anglican priest who eventually uh, poped, went to Rome, became a cardinal. Man, they scooped him up like a, uh, uh, like a golden bar. He was, he, was a, he was a big Anglican in the Church of England and very a proponent of a sort of a, he has a, a, a book called the Apologia of the Church of England, defending the, the faith. And um, he became a Roman Catholic and they, they were very happy about that. He always regretted it though, actually, if you read his memoirs, because um, we've got better music and liturgy. It's true. Um, so the Catholic Church splits into two pieces. The Reformation um, leads uh, the Anglican Church to leave Romanism. We're going to get to that at the Reformation next week. But what we see here is what Anglicans would call the branch theory. Has anybody ever heard this before? The branch theory looks like this. You probably can't read it, but I'll just, you don't really need to know the details of it. This is the early church, right? It's only one. Council of Ephesus, Council of Chalcedon, uh, Nicaea, and all those are in here, okay? Um, then you have the Great Schism in the 11th century. This little purple branch over here is the uh, um, Orthodox Church that went to, like China, and they did some, they were considered not part of the church early on. But the, for our purposes, the Great Schism is right here. You see the blue and the red? And so what you see here is the red, which is the Western Church, and the blue part, which is the Eastern Orthodox Church. They pretty much, the blue part, if you notice, they don't split. They don't split. They never have. The, the Western Church, after the, Bishop of, after the Church of Rome split from the rest of everybody else, and then you have that carried along until the 16th century, which we're going to get to next week, known as the Reformation. Now, what holds, the, what Anglicans believe in is the branch theory, is that because we maintain apostolic succession, right, we are a branch from, excuse me, from the root. In other words, and it all hangs together, logically. If the church was at one point one holy Catholic and apostolic, and it broke into two pieces, Right? The two pieces both claim to be the church. Both of those pieces maintain apostolic succession. When the Church of England later on separates itself politically from the Bishop of Rome, the branch theory maintains, we still maintain that we're part of the church, but not the whole thing. Does that clear everybody? Let me give you an example. Anybody here of the Vatican Council? Yes or no? Yes. Vatican Councils? Yes. Okay, a Vatican Council, let's come back to this in a minute. The Vatican, Vatican says, or the Rome says, we are the church. So what they do is they have things called Vatican Councils. And what a Vatican Council is, and their idea is an ecumenical council. Right? Because they're it. Or the Ortho I don't think the Orthodox have had any more councils since, uh, 
since the, the seven original. But the Church of Rome claims to be the church and therefore the Vatican councils are essentially ecumenical councils where they can make definitive decisions. I'll give you an example. Um, does anybody here know that in the Roman Catholic Church you must believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary? Did you know that you must believe in her immaculate conception? You must believe um, in the infallibility of the Pope. Those are all decisions by Vatican councils that are binding for salvation on Roman Catholics. That's a huge, 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 no, any of those three things could possibly be true, but in my, but if you come back, if you know your history, the only way you could make those decisions is to have an ecumenical council where everybody was together, which can't happen right now because it's blown apart, but the idea being, as an Anglican, what I would say is big things like that, perpetual virginity of Mary, all sorts of different things, can only be decided by an ecumenical council, which right now isn't seeming too likely. Is that clear, everybody? So ecclesiology is actually really, really important, how a church understands itself. Romans say, we're it. The Orthodox say, we're it. Anglicans say, we're part of it, but we're not the whole thing. We would say that for, uh, we would appeal again to apostolic succession, that those two pieces are part of it, that we are part of it, that some Lutheran grades are part of it. What about people who have left apostolic succession? Talk about that next week. But we would say, we're not it, but we're part of it. Did the Eastern Church uh, fall out of apostolic succession? No, they maintain it. Yeah, the Romans do, the uh, uh, Orthodox do, Anglicans do, some branches of Lutherans do, uh, Swedish Lutherans do, um, Old Catholics, that's another whole thread. So there's a bunch of different ones. I've got a bunch of questions. Marilyn? So predicated upon what you just said, mm -hmm. the Eastern Church was correct when uh, it stated that the papacy did not have the right. Okay, Marilyn, yeah, Marilyn's question is a really, that's a really good question. Marilyn's question is this. Um, is that was the Eastern Orthodox Church correct to defy the Roman claims of changing the creed, changing the date of Easter and Roman primacy? And as an Anglican, I would say yes. In fact, I would say in a lot of ways, this is gonna sound funny, but in a lot of ways, Anglican theology is very close to Orthodox theology in substance. Our lit liturgy is definitely not Eastern Orthodox, um, but, our, but our theological method is, which we, you know, Rome wants to define every little thing, Orthodox and Anglicans are a lot more comfortable with mystery, mysterion. And, and the idea that a big thing like uh, those big ideas can only be, uh, only be made changed by an ecumenical council. And in fact, I'll make, make it salient to an issue of current division in the church of women's ordination is a big deal, right? The Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church have said no. Well, they've actually didn't said no. They said we can only make this decision in an ecumenical council. And so the Anglicans have said, well, we're going to do it anyway. Some places have. And so the question is, well, on what grounds? And so that's, it gets, it, it's a whole realm of what do you do? Well, two things. What things are necessary to be decided by an ecumenical council? Point one. That's a big question. And secondly, what do you do with groups that have decided to go a different way? So it's a big issue. Um, it's a big issue. Yes. Um, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the details. It's just a... I'll give you a copy of that that's bigger. How's that? Okay. Uh, yeah, don't, those, I mean, you're going to, Restorationism, Anabaptism, Protestantism, Anglicanism, Catholicism, 
Uh, Mayophysite, don't worry about it. I'll give you a copy of that later. Yes. Well, that, well that, would, that would actually, that's a good, very good question. The, orth, the Anglicans and the Orthodox would say, no, because you can't have an ecumenical council without all the church gathered together, right? The Romans, would, the Romans would say, ah, but we are the church, therefore Vatican II was an ecumenical council. There hasn't been one since. No. Since the split or since the first one? Since Vatican II, in 19, whatever that was, 62, thank you. Why was picked that day and why they changed it, I don't know. The point is, the, what I do know, uh, who knows? But the, the, point, the point, I mean, again, the details aren't as important as the big picture, which is the, the, the Western church asserted a change in something which they had, everybody had always assumed could only be made as a matter of a council. And so the question becomes, well, can you change the date of Easter outside of a council? Can you ordain women outside of a council? That's the question, right? Those are the big questions. But again, if you look at the earliest church's understanding of itself, the council was where big decisions were made. So... And the branch theory says that Anglicans, again, all you need to know that we're not it, but we're part of it. And, we're, and what holds us onto the branch, onto the tree, is this idea of apostolic succession. Is that good? All right, let's talk about the conversion of England. You may not know this, that the, England, the, the church in England, uh, and I use that term importantly, we're going to talk about the church in England and the church of England. Because right now it's the church in England. It's not distinct from, any, from the Western, from, from anybody. In the fourth century, which is before the Great Schism, uh, there was a guy named St. Alban. Some of you, anybody here belong to a St. Alban's church somewhere? They're all over the place. Um, St. Alban was a Roman soldier in the fourth century who was uh, ordained to the priesthood and served in England. There were three British bishops at the Council of Gaul, which is not an ecumenical council, but is a local council. So in 314, which is before the split, before Nicaea, actually, uh, the bishops we know were British bishops were gathered together in this council in France, in Gaul. Um, Bishop Constantine, St. Augustine of, of Canterbury, in the year 597, was made the Archbishop of Canterbury, okay, by Roman appointment. See, and interestingly, uh, Rome begins to assert, because Rome had an empire, or the remains of one, but um, began to assert authority over the church in the West. So the point, this is an important little 250 or 300 years here, because uh, in, the, in 314 in Gaul, the church was still pretty decentralized. By here, in 597, uh, Augustine is appointed the Archbishop of Canterbury by the Bishop of Rome. Um, and, in, and you see here, I have here, the English church comes increasingly under the influence of the Church of Rome. When I say the Church of Rome, I mean the church with, you know, the Roman Catholic Church. Is that clear, everybody? Okay. Um, Roman, and actually, let me, let me back up on that for one second. If you are new to the Episcopal Church or Anglicanism, you will frequently hear people refer to the Roman Church. When I first heard that, I thought, that's weird, what is that? But again, let's come back to the ecclesiology question, okay? Is the, is the Roman Catholic Church the universal church for all humanity? If you believe that, you're in the wrong spot, <laughs> okay? Um, frankly. So we refer to it, the uh, Anglicans refer to it as the Roman Church, meaning it's the church headquartered by the Bishop of Rome. We refer to him as the Bishop of Rome, usually not as the Pope. It depends. I mean, you don't, you don't want to be antagonistic about it, but the Bishop of Rome, we'd say, the, or, the, or the Eastern Church, okay? Um, so, again, back to the church in England, back before the Great Schism, um, there's a guy named Aidan of Lindensfarne, who was an Irish monk, 
who brought Celtic practices to the church in England. Uh, the Synod of Whitby in 664, that's a household idea, right? In 664, again, not too much longer after Augustine is put in Canterbury uh, by the Bishop of Rome, in 664, the church in England submits to Roman decisions and councils. That's a big deal if you're an Anglican. Okay, because the church, but notice something important. Until 664, the church in England had actually been quite distinct from the Church of Rome. And there was a whole liturgical practice, there was uh, spirituality, all sorts of different things that were not all completely distinct, but were nuanced, right? They were English and not Latin. Um, and there was an, an Anglican distinctiveness in organization and liturgy. Anybody here ever wonder why we use blue in, in um, Advent and not purple? Uh, if you ever notice, we use purple for vestments in Lent, but we use blue in Advent. And the reason is, uh, in England, there is a cathedral, um, one of the cathedrals has something called the Sarum Rite. The Sarum Rite was an English rite. I mean, it was legit. It was, uh, the prayers are all legitimate and, and accurate, but they would use blue as Advent rather than purple in Lent. And so a lot of Anglican churches will continue to use blue in Advent, for example, as a liturgical distinctive in the Church of Rome. You'll never go to a Roman Catholic church and see Sarum blue, I guarantee you, for Advent. Does that make sense? And then again, not a big deal, but the point being that the church in England was distinct in some ways, but increasingly came under the authority of the Bishop of Rome. And so the question becomes, Fundamentally, what is the authority of the Bishop of Rome? What is his authority? And this is an important detail because the authority of the Bishop of Rome will actually have influence on the later Reformation. Well, and in fact, you know, and, and it's, yes, Jim's point is that the Archbishops of Canterbury, the religious authorities, had a lot of political power. It's actually an interesting distinction because if you were to go back contemporarily to them, they wouldn't see a distinction between theological and political power. They have, the English had something called the divine right of kings, and this actually comes right out of scripture, where Paul says, be subject to the civil authorities, where they are placed, put there by God. The idea being that the monarch was actually the head of the church, not in spiritual matters, but in temporal matters. And in fact, that's true not only, of only in England, but all of Europe. Um, the, the queen, of England currently is the head of the Church of England in temporal matters. She's not ordained, obviously, but uh, she, uh, she has a high degree of authority in terms of, well, maybe not so much anymore, but historically they did. And actually, that's a very good point. When we get to, when we get to the Church of England next time and Henry VIII and all that debacle, you know, everybody thinks that, well, what Henry was trying to assert, and we'll talk about this next week, was that the Archbishop of Kent, why is Rome telling Henry he can't have an annulment, which it was like he asked for. He didn't ask for a divorce, but an annulment, probably on justifiable grounds. Um, but he, he says, well, wait a minute, why am I appealing to the Bishop of Rome for an annulment when the Archbishop of Canterbury is the bishop in which, whose jurisdiction I, I reside? And that's a good, and that, that is when the whole thing came to a head and again, the split occurred again. But actually, when you get to this next week, the Church of Vintnet and the Anglican split, Again, why did it split? Well, the assertion of the authority of the primacy of Rome, just like in the Great Schism. Stuff circles round and round, doesn't it? All right, any questions or comments there? Nothing? Am I throwing too much at you? 
Um, okay, so we're going we're gonna to go through the Middle Ages very quickly. Uh, in the Middle Ages, as you know, Rome falls. They are run, overrun by the, uh, the Visigoths and, uh, and uh, the Germanic tribes and so forth. Uh, Rome falls. Er Europe slides into feudalism. So basically, when central authority fails, Rome was all about centralized authority and power, right? That's what made it so prosperous. Once that fails, what happens? People go into... Uh, feudalism, you know, little sort of tribes and city-state kind of idea. Interestingly, you may not know this, um, people will frequently look and say, well, the church has always tried to suppress truth and suppress free inquiry and suppress knowledge. Nonsense. In the Middle Ages, the monasteries were actually where you went to become educated. The monasteries were the, were the smartest guys and women, in the case of female monasteries, where they lived. And monasteries um, were pivotal to the Middle Ages because that's where learning and science and mathematics and all these different things were actually um, were maintained because central authority had broken down. Same time? Absolutely, yeah, well, right. The great, yes, so Don's question is what about these different monastic orders uh, that were formed in the 11th century, 1066 and onward? You're exactly right. After the Great Schism and during, I mean, the Great Schism happened at the same time as the, as the Visigoths and the overrunning of the Roman Empire. It all ties together. So civil, civil authority breaks down. The church begins to become more powerful because the civil power has diminished by virtue of being invaded. And these, these monastic communities begin to spring up as a way to maintain learning and Christianity uh, in, the in the context of a culture which has fallen apart. There's actually a very good book out. I haven't read the whole thing yet. It's right out right now called The Benedict Option. Benedict was a guy who started a monastery called Benedictines. And this, the um, author of the book says that Christianity in the West uh, is under such assault, and, and, and Western culture in general under such assault, that the church has to be prepared to go back to that model. I'm not so sure I buy his premise, but it's an interesting thought that you know the church has always been the church has always uh, been in the West anyway part of the culture, right? I mean, our constitution's founded on a Christian worldview. As that begins continues to erode, his this Benedict option is the idea that you know what maybe we ought to just like form communities of people to maintain each other in the context of a culture which is just going haywire. I don't know. It's interesting. Interesting idea. Um, Another guy, by the way, named St. Francis, who's 12th century, decided, he, Francis, by way of sort of a slight um, uh, sideways mark here, he uh, saw the monasteries become very wealthy, very powerful, and he said, well, wait a minute, if we're going to be cooped up in these monasteries, who's going to preach the gospel? And so what Francis did is he started an order of brothers and another group of women, sisters, uh, that would go out, and they were actually uh, go out and and um, they, didn't, they lived in, as a, a rule of life, but they didn't live in community. They would go out and they would live amongst people. Right, so Jim's, Jim's comment is that during the, before, before, the sack of, before the invasion of the empire, the weather, global warming. Uh, a mini ice age. A mini ice age. Uh, forced people south. That the Rhine, yeah, that makes, I mean, all these things tie in, right? And these things are, you know. Cultures change by all sorts of different reasons. Um, but the point I want you to see here as we wrap up is that the church, the monasteries maintained Western thought and actually lifted some stuff from the Muslims like algebra and some things that 
they were they came from during this invasion period uh, from the east. Um, the monasteries continue to grow. The Western Church becomes wealthy, right? There's no centralized authority to maintain things anymore, so someone's got to make the money. The church becomes corrupt, increasingly corrupt, and that eventually leads to the Reformation, which we're going to talk about next time. So, conclusion, um, the church was, in the beginning, one holy Catholic and apostolic, Episcopal form of church governance maintained via apostolic succession. You guys see me beating this drum up a lot? It's important. Uh, the church, according to the Anglican understanding, the church is currently fractured into pieces, but survives in pieces or in branches, you might say. And the, the thread amongst those branches is this idea of apostolic succession. The Bible talks about apostolic succession and councils. For example, when, uh, when Matthias is elected by vote to replace Judas, because Judas betrayed Jesus, they needed a new apostle, another, a new bishop, they gathered, look at it, it's in Acts chapter 5 or 6, where they gather together, they elect Matthias by vote, and they lay hands on him. Right? When, when Paul would, would leave, 2 Timothy, somewhere in there, when Paul would go, would plant a church, Timothy, he would lay hands on him as a presbyter, priest, and give him the authority to do these things. So it's not just a later uh, evolution, it, it's actually biblical. And in the book of Acts, when they... Um, when they were trying to decide about food laws for Gentiles and things, the church gathers together in council. It, it says uh, apostles and elder, which is the word presbyter, priest, and they met in council and argued and prayed and came up with a statement called the Council of Jerusalem, which talks about what they're gonna do with Jewish food laws for Gentiles, which the answer was they don't have to follow them. But it's in, it's in the book of Acts. So, you, what you, so you're, my, my point is, this is not something which came on after Scripture. It's just that the, and again, you can't think of it as this book fell out of the sky. It didn't. It, it was in an, an, an environment of people that used Scripture and then, and then um, and you continued the methods used in Scripture later on. Is that, am I answering your question? Yes. Okay. Okay, thank you, Alan. Paul. Paul was given, was met with the other, the other brethren. He talks about this in Acts as well. And yes, he was also ordained. Mm -hmm. Recognize, it's interesting, Paul claims to have had an authority, a, a call given to him by Jesus directly. Mm -hmm. But they recognize his orders. If you, it's, it's, I have to look it up and we can talk about this sometime. Maybe we should get a, do, a, do a class on that. Any, anything else? I'm just looking at sort of global ideas here. Am I helping you? Have I challenge anybody to think a little differently? Is it self-serving? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I, I, I understand. But but we're gonna. But in, and again, that 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 sword cuts both ways. I agree with you. Can you go back as an Anglican, as an apologia for your own view, and say, well, the apostolic succession is historically verifiable? I mean, you can prove that. But is it necessary? Well, I would say I don't know. So I would say, what did the church always believe about that thing? And if you look at church fathers and read about it, they that's. But they all, their conclusion. Um, it's interesting too. If when we look at the Reformation next week, people like John Calvin believed in apostolic succession. Martin Luther believed in the necessity of apostolic succession and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It was the people that came after them that kind of pulled away from it. Um, so we'll get to that next week. It's a good question, though, uh, and, it's, and it's a valid a valid criticism. I would just say, for me personally, um, if you do your 
research and history, you have to come to the conclusion that the church always believed that. So, okay, one second. Yeah, they, that's a good question. So, there, so um, uh, her, her point was uh, that when they, the, the Bishop of Rome and the Patriarch of the Eastern Church met, they said the Nicene Creed together and the Pope omitted the Filioque. There's actually, actually a movement in the Episcopal Church to omit the Filioque as well. Which I think is, it's histor again, is historically justifiable. If you look, if you, yes, sir. Okay, that's a good question. Uh, in, the, in the Nicene Creed, we say, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. Uh, the Filioque is, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Philios is the word for Son in Greek. So the Filioque clause, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The and the Son is the Filioque clause. It's not in the original creed as decided on by the Council of Nicaea. It was added later by the Roman Church. We inherited it as a result of that, but it's not in the original. And it's a huge bone of contention between the Orthodox and the Romans, not because of the words themselves, but because what it shows you is where does your authority lie? Can the Bishop of Rome make unilateral decisions, or do these decisions belong in the context of an ecumenical council? That's the problem. Good question. Okay, I got a minute and a half. Yes, Lynn. You know, Charlie Clippert asked me that question, and I, meant, I told him I'd look it up, but I never did, and I don't know. But I'll find out for you. Google it. What did we do before Google? Yeah, the, the Apostles' Creed uh, predates the Nicene Creed, as far as I know, but I don't think it was ever validated by a council. I think that's the difference. There's actually another one called the, uh, the uh, Creed of St. Athanasius. Anybody ever read that? It's in the back of the prayer book, and it's a whopper. I mean, it's long. And, uh, and it actually says, for anyone who must be saved, he must believe the Catholic faith. And it lays out all the decisions of this, in this creed of St. Athanasius. I used to read it on the first Sunday of Lent in my former parish, and I almost got fired for it. So. But it's in the prayer book. Anything else? All right. Thank you, folks. Hope you learned something. All right. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.